Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. Big week for you. I uh, haven't really asked about the uh, the screening you had last night, but it sounds like it was a good time. Oh, yeah. At the Fox Theater in the beaches of Toronto. I think we teased that or plugged it on a recent episode. Showed uh, one of my favorite movies, the direct-to-video Canadian horror film Things from the year 1989. It was a movie that was made by two guys from Scarborough who didn't know how to make a movie. Uh, they just picked up a camera one day and they and they and they pressed play on it. Tried to make a horror movie and the most Canadian guys you've ever seen. Like the writer and producer who is also the lead actor, Barry J. Gillis, has the most prominent Canadian accent you've ever heard. Sorry, it's not, that sounds Scottish. I don't. I can't do a Canadian. I mean, you accent. are a Canadian. Well, you can just use your regular speaking voice. But he, you know, oat in a boat. I know, like you mean. like yeah. all all yeah. that. Yeah, right. I, I don't usually right. the Canadian accent. That's actually just like how for people from like Minnesota soda talk right exactly i don't i don't actually notice canadian accents that much because i live in canada but but every now and then you know you hear one that's really prominent yeah again i didn't sound like a canadian accent to me but i know the one you're talking about yeah yeah oat in a boat that i'm confident about it's not oot in a boot so tell us about this movie well, it's sort of like if Bob and Doug McKenzie tried to make a horror movie but accidentally made an art film. It's like this <laughs> inland empire-like experience <laughs> shot with an 8mm movie camera. You know, the mood of it, the color, the texture, all very like DavidLynch.com style surrealism. I'm Dr. Lucas, down from Grizzly Flats. So you're the fucking bastard, eh? Susan's dead, everybody's dead, all because of you. Oh, me? Yeah, you. There's hundreds of creatures around this goddamn hellhole. All because of you. Do you want to see some blood? But you know, one thing about that I particularly like is they were like, okay, we have to get a we have to get a big star in this movie. I learned last night that Andrew Jordan and Barry J. Gillis, you know, were habitues of some of the strip clubs in in Toronto. And headlining was one of the biggest adult film stars of the '80s, Amber Lynn. So they went over and said, "Would you be in our Would you be in our movie?" And she was like, "Sure, two thousand dollars, and I don't take my clothes off." And they were like, "Done." <laughs> so the movie is, for the most part, this horror movie of a bunch of guys in like a haunted house, and then it keeps cutting to. Amber Lynn as a newscaster, blatantly reading her lines from a cue card just off screen. Hi, and welcome to TV9 News. I'm Amber Lynn. And I'm Johnny Scott. And we are your hosts for today's broadcast, following top news stories of the day. We will speak briefly with the leader of the Soviet Union concerning topics of the George Bush administration. It's like it's like that. Uh, what was that like Godzilla movie where they just like added a bunch of like grafted some footage of Raymond like, Burr of Raymond yeah. Burr in like a situation room on the other side of the world, just giving these epic monologues about like for too long we have toyed with the powers of nature, and then it just has no effect on anything that's happening in Tokyo. And it's like Amber Lynn has made five hundred <laughs> movies, and she's never worn more clothes than in this movie. I mean, I think the two thousand dollars. I think they might have got ripped off honestly for forty five <laughs> minutes of filming time. Anyway, just a great screening with a great audience two of the actual co-stars from the movie bruce roach and jan w patchoul who were just like you know two guys from scarborough who ended up being in this movie uh came to the screening and came on stage and got to like soak in the love uh so honestly just a fantastic experience and you know you know me off mic i'm always complaining about the fans i'm always whining <laughs> and just being like ah oh, oh, i hate having to deliver content for people yeah you know? will seems to be just constantly haunted by an army of sort of undead replies guys but the fact that i get to do stuff like this every now and then uh you know it's like i i, I have a very good life i i, I like my life <laughs> but and some some listeners showed up right oh yes uh, michael and us nation uh has been coming to my events which i really appreciate <laughs> thanks everyone i i was not there you know, but, you know uh, sometimes people come up to me and you know what they say they say uh i was originally more of a luke guy <laughs> <laughs> you'll never guess what they say to me well since you mentioned david lynch i'll just mention uh, i revisited firewalk with me recently when was the last Good time movie. you saw it? I saw it about six years ago, maybe. Yeah, I had not seen it since properly watching uh, Twin Peaks. You know, the first time I saw it, I feel like I'd maybe seen just the first eight episodes or something, which was, you know, ridiculous to watch it before watching, you know, the the second season and the, the finale of the second season in particular. But it's very strange to me in some ways that the film was so critically panned at the time. I mean, I, it's been kind of interesting to think about why that was. 
Well, I think it's a lot of factors. I mean, a certain buyer's remorse often happens with very acclaimed artists in mid-career. Like David Lynch had been so acclaimed in the 80s and early 90s. Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart winning the Palme d'Or. He was on the cover of Time magazine for Twin Peaks. And then, I don't know, a certain, a certain buyer's remorse happens where it's like, maybe, yeah, maybe we invested too much in this guy. Maybe he's actually a bit of a phony. Blue Velvet and Wild at Heart were two movies that if you were serious about movies at the time, And then Twin Peaks for like three months was an actual cultural phenomenon. Mm -hmm. But the second season of Twin Peaks was so poorly received. And I think... Well, well, uh, a a string of episodes in particular. Yeah, but he'd kind of taken his hand off the wheel for most of the second. He was working on Wild at Heart. So there's like eight episodes where Mark Frost and David Lynch are, are involved, certainly. And then I think Mark Frost maybe also left. And there's just this like, it's not like a gradual decline or it's just it goes off a cliff. And then he Lynch came back to direct the last episode. But Firewalk with me is also very different from the show. I mean, there was Twin Peaks fatigue. I think there was a general sense of like, oh my God, you know, one more trip back to the well. Although if you were cashing in on Twin Peaks, if you were pandering to the fans, you wouldn't make that movie. Well, I mean, this is the thing. I mean, I think that the poor reception that the film received in some quarters, the critical reviews in various newspapers and such, I think owes itself to a number of things. I mean, first of all, I think just most obviously the fact that the tone of the movie is so completely different from the show that it really doesn't have the same kind of comedic tone at all. It is it is a dark and at times very disturbing sit. I think also the decision to make it a prequel rather than a sequel. I mean, this movie came out in 1992. I mean, it might have come out, I'm sure there's people listening who know uh, this exactly, but I mean, it came out certainly within a year, I think, of, of the season two finale, which is a cliffhanger. Kyle McLaughlin staring into that mirror and saying, where's Annie? And so, I mean, I think if, if you wanted to know what, what the hell was going on, like, Fire Walk With Me can't help you. But I think the most interesting possible explanation is that in Fire Walk With Me, Lynch makes the radical creative decision to tell the film, to tell the story from Laura Palmer's perspective, which is really kind of radically inverting what Twin Peaks had done to date, because Todd McGowan points this out in that book of his, uh, The Impossible David Lynch. Laura Palmer in, in the show is this kind of structuring absence. She's this sort of ideal of, you know, white American femininity. All the characters who Agent Cooper interacts with feel like they have some special insight into her, some special relationship with her. It kind of feels like what each of them really has is kind of these scraps of the truth. And, you know, you spend a lot of time thinking about like, okay, well, who really was Laura Palmer. And the thing about Fire Walk With Me is that when you actually spend all this time with Laura Palmer, what you see is that she's kind of whoever she needs to be in front of different people and in given situations. The film could have suffered in, you know, making Laura Palmer and her perspective the center of it. It could have suffered from what a lot of prequels do. You know, the Star Wars prequels, I hate to bring them up. It's a cliche. also hate to bring them up when I've got a good movie on the brain. But it's like, you know, one of the reasons those movies uh, are bad, in my opinion not really down for the attempts to reclaim them, I have to say, uh, is that they just kind of over-explain. You know, there's these mythic characters you were introduced in the original trilogy, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, now you get to see them as like a little kid, or you get to find out that Yoda met Chewbacca or whatever. Any kind of mystery. Did, did Yoda meet Chewbacca? I can't remember. Yeah, it's in, I think it's in Revenge of the Sith, and you don't remember this? This no, where, no, it's, I, I it's, it's after the Battle of Kashyyyk and uh, Yoda is like escaping or whatever. Like this is the. Oh, I, I do remember him. And, then, and yeah. then he and then he's about to get a little, uh, you know, a little craft to escape. And then he looks up at the Wook and he's like, oh, thank failed you. we have. Chewbacca. You remember that? Yeah, yeah he says yeah. failed we have. And then he goes, thank you. Dramatic pause. Chewbacca. And you know what's funny about that is he's like, he's what, 700 years old, he's bouncing around like a little ping pong ball. And then 30 years later when he meets Luke, <laughs> he slows down hot. quite a lot. Like yeah. all of a sudden, although maybe that, I guess that's what happens to us, isn't it? <laughs> but just back to Fire Walk with me for a minute. I mean, I found the film, I think in some ways you can make an argument that it actually expands the mystery of Laura Palmer. It's fascinating how even in individual scenes when she's interacting with, uh, you know, a character like like James or Bobby, she almost seems to play multiple parts over the course of the interaction. And the thing is, I think all of that is absolutely central to what the film is doing, and it would not be the great film that it is were it not for that creative decision. But I can see how it might have been disorienting to some people at the time. And also, if you were, you know, a Twin Peaks fanatic and you want to find out what happens after Dark Agent Cooper says, where's Annie into the mirror, you know, you might have been disappointed. 
I think part of the backlash around Lynch at that time, though, was this. I mean, he was somebody who was dealing in such transgressive and disturbing imagery and ideas. And there was this ambient concern at the time that he might not have been all that serious about it, which I think over time has been, I mean, Twin Peaks Firewalk with me has been, I think, more or less it's been fully reclaimed. Yeah. People now talk about it as one of his best movies. But do you remember, I mean, there was the famous like, Roger Ebert critique of the of the uh, Isabella Rossellini stuff oh, in, that. in yeah, Blue yeah. Velvet, which was a sort of harbinger of you know when Wild at Heart came out, there was this in some good, quarter, good for Gene Siskel by the way. I for agree. Just being like Roger, you're full of shit. Yeah, like, what are you talking about? Uh, in Wild at Heart, there were some misgivings in some quarters about some of the very brutal violence in that movie. I mean, like it, like the, it is the, it is a deeply disturbing. The first thirty movie. seconds where Nick Cage like curb stomps the guy basically mm. was, uh, and it's kind of played for a laugh a little mm-hmm. bit that bothered a lot of people but you remember well, there was, there's this, and there's sexual violence well, in it course, as well yeah. that's, that's upsetting but yeah. you remember also that bit in um, the David Foster Wallace essay about Lost Highway where he specifically right. talks about the Richard Pryor scene and Richard Pryor who shows up in the movie for all of 45 seconds and had at that point multiple sclerosis was definitely not the Richard Pryor that we all knew and loved from stage I say we all I was seven years old <laughs> at the time but anyway <laughs> that America knew and loved from the stage I remember David Foster Wallace writing something along the lines of this is when I like Lynch the least when he's sort of pulling somebody out as like a freak and getting you to gawk at him which with the Richard Pryor thing specifically he he's played ignorance about it or has been like I just think Richard's a beautiful soul and I wanted to (laughs) capture him in a movie which seems a little disingenuous to me (laughs) you know but you can imagine you can imagine like him doing a, a version of the argument that's like what we shouldn't look at this man with multiple sclerosis just because he was once very fit and active um anyway these were the sorts of misgivings that were circulating in the air at the time uh lynch's stock is much higher now um i think in time he has proven himself a very serious artist but i do think this malaise is something that afflicts a lot of artists when they're kind of at their height and when they're 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 the men of the moment rather than the old masters you know i've thought a lot about this movie since it won the Cannes film festival last may which i totally disapproved of and i think what bothers me the most about David Lynch is what I would call his only kidding syndrome. He wants to deal with the most shocking possible imagery. He wants to deal with subject matter that involves violence and images that are sure to absolutely repel the audience. And then he wants to always end with a punchline that's a joke. I think you're right to call it a malaise, but it is interesting. The malaise you're talking about is just entirely about how the culture around, you know, in this case, David Lynch metabolized his work. It's not really about the quality of the work at all, because Fire Walk With Me is a great movie. Yeah, but, you know, the work always exists in contexts, doesn't it? I mean, the work uh, the work is always responding to whatever moment it's in. Uh, maybe I'm being coming uh, uh, a radical postmodernist, or, or, but it's yeah, true. May- maybe you're wish casting about this podcast finally getting some critical response. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) How come we don't have a Canadian podcast award? (laughs) Well, folks, it's time for the plug segment as usual. You may be wondering what's happening on patreon.com slash Michael and us. I had been wondering that. Can you tell me? Recently, we discussed the hit film The Blind Side, as well as an episode where we caught up on the news and talked a little bit about, um, you know, Canadian Parliament uh, uh, applauding a Nazi. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, for just five Yankee dollars a month, you can have access to that and all the rest of our back catalog. Got to be hundreds of episodes at this point. Bonus interviews like Will's conversation with the great film critic Jonathan Rosenbaum or my recent conversation with Nick Mason of Pink Floyd. You should all also check out Will's solo documentary about Orson Welles' old radio broadcasts. Lots of fun stuff available at the Al Gore tier for $5 a month. Luke, it's been established that you have a new book coming out. Do you have anything you'd like to promote, (laughs) perhaps related to that? It has been established. Yes, if you're a listener of ours in Ottawa, I will be there to launch Seeking Social Democracy with Ed Broadbent and our colleagues at the Ottawa Writers Festival on October the 10th. That is going to be at St. John the Evangelist Church, 154 Summer Street West, 7.30 p.m., downtown Ottawa. There will be a link in the show notes. We will be in Toronto on October the 22nd at the Reference Library in Vancouver on November the 1st at Vancouver Central Library. If you happen to be in Hamilton and want to stop by the NDP convention, I believe that's October the 14th. Uh, I will be there as well, and I will have books. 
I will likely have other dates to announce soon. Likely going to be in Windsor at some point and probably a few other places as well. But yes, the book comes out next week and we're going to be doing events on it for the next few months. So if we're visiting your city, uh, by all means, come out. I'm going to be moderating a Q&A after a film screening coming up. My friend Nate Wilson is showing his debut feature, The All Golden, which just premiered at the Fantastic Film Festival in Austin, Texas. I would describe this movie as imagine Damon Packard and Mark Fisher teamed up to make a mumblecore comedy. (laughs) Okay, sold. It's playing Thursday, November 2nd at the Review Cinema in Toronto, and uh, I'm doing a Q&A with Nate after. A uh, very funny, very strange film, so uh, come on out. Well, we do have a fun movie to discuss this week. Uh, boy, do we a, ever. A good movie, <laughs> excuse me. A, yeah, a, a definitely a really good movie, uh, but I think we'd be remiss uh, not to talk about some recent political events. I mean, Will, uh, were you watching C-SPAN yesterday when various shenanigans were happening in the U.S. Congress? Uh, no, I was not. Do you even I, know I was... what I'm talking no, no, I was busy uh, preparing for and hosting my event. What you was happening? You, you didn't, you didn't witness the hilarious ousting of Kevin McCarthy. Oh, oh, sorry. Yes, I did. I did follow this. <laughs> I mean, you know, sorry. So much has been happening. You know, I just got over <laughs> Diane Feinstein's death. Yeah, you, you know, and, you and her I, grieving I, staffers. I was yeah, just yeah. putting out an apology statement for applauding a member of the Waffen SS. My my <laughs> mind has been in a lot of different places lately. Well, you know what? I was uh, I was kind of amused by the whole the whole spec. But then, you know, some of my favorite... Is uh, there room for an honest conservative <laughs> anymore? You know, a principled conservative? Some of my some of my favorite accounts, you know, kind of uh, kind of put me right because ultimately, you know, dysfunction in the, you know, in the governing body of, you know, the most powerful country in the world is not funny. Uh, you know, do you think it's funny that the U.S. political system is this dysfunctional? Do you think it's funny that a mediocre opportunist from the Tea Party era like Kevin McCarthy was ousted by an alleged sex criminal with the physiognomy of Glenn Quagmire, who used to live in the Truman Show house? Well, I do. <laughs> I think it's very funny. I mean, who who cares about uh, Kevin McCarthy? I mean, you know, Gates and these like, f- you know, Freedom Caucus guys are absolutely nuts. But like, I don't know, it just does speak to, frankly, the deep dysfunction of the Republican Party. And the fact that its upper echelons are like staffed now by these guys like McCarthy, who, you know, I saw Ilan Omar actually talking about this on MSNBC uh, a few days ago, and I thought she made a really good point. It's like Kevin McCarthy is just the guy who wanted to be speaker. Like, it seems like that was kind of an end in itself. And so, you know, he was like, okay, whatever. Like, I will give Matt Gates, I'll give the Freedom Caucus, like, whatever they want. They're going to humiliate me. It's going to take me like 17 votes to get the speaker's gavel. But then, you know, God damn it, I'm going to be speaker. And it's like, I'm not a strategist for Kevin McCarthy. I don't know if there was another way for him to become speaker. The whole speakership was doomed from the start. He was never going to wield any power. And this just end, you know, began with humiliation. And now it's ended with humiliation. I mean, he could run again, but he's announced, I think, that he's not going to. So I don't even know how much more there is to say about this. But I think we may now have like another, I mean, if if, if Gates and the Freedom Caucus want to go another like 15 or 20 rounds, like they could just do this to any quote unquote centrist Republican who steps up. And this could mean that now like every debt ceiling negotiation, right, which is now this, it's this dance that happens like in the US Congress, like every few years, it could be that now it will always come with a chaser of like, you know, 15 of the most insane Republican backbenchers exploiting the situation situation to just, you know, get, I don't know, uh, whatever they want at a given time, like, you know, well, you need to impeach Joe Biden harder or whatever it is. Many times over the years, you or me or people like us would, you know, look at the Democrats and say, you know, where where's their backbone? Why is somebody like Joe Biden, whose whole thing is compromise for its own sake? You know, what? why can't there be people there who believe in things and fight for things and are ruthless? You know, the Republicans, they are ruthless. They fight for what they want. They get rid of the people who they perceive as obstacles to those goals. Well, are, are we seeing the limits to this? Are, are we see, are seeing where this starts to backfire? Well, maybe I think it backfires, if that's the right word. I mean, it's counterproductive, obviously, when it's people like Matt Gates doing it, because their ends and their objectives are themselves counterproductive. But I mean, if we're being serious, I think there is an argument to be made that like the congressional left could behave more like this. I mean, I don't mean exactly like this, but I mean, what was the argument for not making it a little harder for Nancy? Pelosi to become speaker again? Or, or what was the argument for not uh, replying to the hostility that Hakeem Jeffries was keen to show the left with, I don't know, 
at least just a proportional response of some kind. I mean, I do think you have to be you have to be somewhat careful. You have to be pragmatic about this stuff. But I mean, in principle, the idea of like, yeah, use your power if you're a small group in Congress in as outsized a way as you can to achieve your objectives. And the thing about the congressional left is that unlike Matt Gates, unlike the Freedom Caucus, there is quite broad public and popular support for you know most of their key objectives. Like what Matt Gates is doing is the intersection of like the old kind of Tea Party, like, oh, the deficit, there's too much national debt, you know, we got to make all these cuts, you know. In fact, it's the same politics that like Kevin McCarthy came to Washington to, you know, to, to advocate for. But then it's also, it's, you know, it's that plus sort of this MAGA brain shit. Like, yeah, Matt Gates thinking that Kevin McCarthy, who just like totally capitulated and was like, okay, sure, we're going to do this sort of bullshit, like attempt to impeach Joe Biden or whatever. It's just, I don't know, the, the, the spectacle was not enough for Matt Gates and it was not enough for like his extremely online, you know, fans or whatever. So yeah, they just, they're, they're, they're just always going to want to go harder. But yeah, like that's more kind of spectacle than it is, you know, politics in many ways. And again, if the congressional left had its own version of this, I think it would look quite different. Certainly something to consider. Well, as you can see, our institutions are falling apart. Sometimes we have to move beyond law and order. That's a lesson that we've learned from our old friend Paul Kersey, the architect slash vigilante played by Charles Bronson in the five Death Wish films. In previous episodes, at some point across this show's long run, we've talked about Death Wish 1 and the delightful Death Wish 3, But now, (laughs) at last, we come to 1987's Death Wish 4, The Crackdown. (laughs) Two kids looking for a new thrill. Hey, just like I promised. Yeah, sure. But this time, the thrill went too far. Crack has claimed another victim. Dealers are making up their own rules, and no one is able to stop them. Somebody has got to crack down. Who are you? Death. Charles Bronson in the biggest death wish ever. They have to be stopped, cousin. Death Wish 4, The Crackdown. Spent a small fortune buying information on the major drug dealers in Los Angeles. I'll handle this my own way, no interference from you. Well, this is one of several films that Charles Bronson made with the dinosaur director J. Lee Thompson, 73 years old at the time of the film's making, for Canon Group, which, you know, the cinephiles listening will know all about Canon. It was a studio run by the Israeli businessmen Menachem Golan and Yoram Globus, who prospered in the 80s, making, for the most part, schlock. And, and I say that lovingly. Um, a lot of Chuck Norris movies, a lot of Charles Bronson movies, uh, certain genre Claude Van Damme and Sylvester Stallone movies. What I particularly like about Canon, though, is like 5% of its output would be like attempts at prestige. And actually, there's a movie within a movie. Uh, Charles Bronson goes to meet someone in a movie theater. And I was like, what's what's the film they're seeing? Well, and it turns out it was this very company put one of their like faux prestige movies into this movie. What I love about Golan and Globus was like they weren't really sophisticates themselves, <laughs> but they sort of knew what sophistication was. And so like <laughs> some of the movies they produced were really good, like Andre Conchalot. Lovsky's Runaway Train, John Cassavetti's Love Streams, okay, right. uh, Franco Zeffirelli's Othello, Barbe Schroeder's Barfly, and my favorite example, <laughs> well, two favorite examples, Norman Mailer's Tough Guys Don't Dance, which was kind of a failed prestige movie. <laughs> but the best of all was Jean-Luc Godard's King Lear, which they signed the deal with Godard on a napkin at the Cannes Film Festival, which is one of those only in Tinseltown stories. <laughs> um, and they're like, great. Uh, next con, you'll deliver us King Lear. It'll be a screenplay by Norman Mailer, and it'll star Woody Allen. And did this this movie got made? It got made. Yeah, Woody Allen's in it. Yes, he is, and I'll tell you all about it. <laughs> so a year passes, no movie gets delivered. <laughs> Golan is calling Godard. It's like. Uh, why why haven't you delivered the movie? And so Norman Mailer writes a script and Godard has Norman Mailer come over and shoot a couple of scenes where he plays himself writing the script. And Godard also has Mailer's own daughter in it. And Mailer's like, it seems to me like you're implying an incestuous relationship between myself and my daughter in this film, Jean-Luc. 
And he was exactly right to think that. So he left the set. So it's not written by Norman Mailer anymore, but the opening credits play to an angry phone call by Menahem Golan to Jean-Luc Godard saying, where's the film? And then the first scene are a couple of scenes that he shot with Norman Mailer where Jean-Luc Godard narrates it and says, the great author had a case of star behavior and left the set. And then the rest of the movie was basically improvised over two weeks. And uh, it ends... I've never heard of this. It ends, the last two minutes have Woody Allen in it because he was mandated to be in it and he does nothing in particular. <laughs> he sits in a room and then he reads a bit of Shakespeare and then the movie ends. And Sounds great. I love it. <laughs> I, I think it's fun. I, it's, it's just Godard having fun. Um, well, there's with, no with way... these two businessmen he didn't respect. <laughs> it's a real like scorpion and frog thing where it's like, where it's like, you guys know nothing about me. You want me to make an adaptation of King Lear by Norman Mailer? What about that screams me? That's <laughs> That's what the movie conveys. Well, uh, it does sound good. There's no way it was as good as 1987's Death Wish for the Crackdown. I was a little anxious when Will suggested this movie, and I was saying to him during the opening scene, which turns out to be a dream sequence. Yeah, boo for that, by the way. But yeah, it's, you know, if you're familiar with the Death Wish movies, I mean, just the most, like, you know, horrendous reactionary, you know, vigilantism, just like absolutely unhinged violence, a vision of America. In which just gangs are constantly there's a gang lurking in every parking garage to assault every unsuspecting woman walking to her car. That's how the movie opens. I say it's a dream sequence because Charles Bronson, you know, wakes up in a cold sweat after, you know, he shot the bad guys and then he, you know, pulls off one of the masks and it's his own face. A little bit of ambiguity inserted there, I guess. But this is not a dream sequence because the whole thing is like it's only like the last like two seconds of this like six minute sequence that are from Charles Bronson's perspective. It's like, I'm sorry, that's not how dreams work. But anyway, I was I was a little anxious because, you know, you watch this and it's like, God, this is so, you know, rancid. And like, it's hard for me sometimes when we watch a movie that appears to be this ugly from the get go. It's like, how, you know, what kind of what register do you speak about this in? Because you want to laugh at it and make fun of it because it's so stupid. But then if what you're seeing is so ugly, how do you do that? Well, it turns out that the rest of the movie is basically nothing like the first sequence. In fact, if you cut that out, literally, it wouldn't affect the movie in any way. And the rest of the movie, uh, yeah, is like just an insanely right wing movie that's like so right wing that it's actually kind of camp and it's something beyond a law and order movie. Everything was slightly off. We were just laughing out loud at every single scene. I loved it. Well, 1974's Death Wish, which was based on the Alan Garfield novel that, as I understand it... <laughs> it's a novel. Well, it was based on a novel that was a bestseller that, as I understand, was, like, not pro-vigilanteism. Uh-huh. Um, it, but it was molded that way for the screen. And you may recall that the first film um, attempted to be ambiguous. It presented uh-huh. itself as a real movie. <laughs> you know, there was the whole first hour when Charles Bronson plays just a mild-mannered architect, a Manhattan lib who oddly has the face of Charles Bronson, um, who, you know, has an idyllic Upper West Side life with his, you know, uh, wife and and daughter who are assaulted and killed by a a gang of uh, muggers. And then in his mourning, in his grief, in his maybe his craziness, uh, he gets a gun and begins just going out and, and shooting the muggers that are taking over New York at the time. And the movie raises questions like, well, when the city has gone mad, you know, what are what are good men to do? Important moral questions. Yeah. And, you know, you look at it, you stroke your chin and you're like, you know, yeah, maybe it is. OK, God, to God just... damn, you know, I don't I don't like what this movie's saying, but can I argue it? Uh, and, and of course you can. Um, <laughs> so, you know, some years passed between the first movie and the second one. The Canon Group got the property and they were like, well, we can make some shit action movies out of this. Now, the first three films in the series were directed by Michael Winner, who was a British public intellectual, let's call him. Uh, he was, among other things, a TV host, a food critic, a black-hearted little man, just a vile <laughs> person. Uh, you know, a, a man a man who was born with Tory DNA. Just one of the worst people to ever come out of Britain, which is saying something because because Britain is very bad. And you know what Michael Winner loved in those first three movies was he loved killing minorities and he loved the sexual assault scenes. He was a true sadist. By this one, this one, he's been replaced by Jay Lee Thompson, who's an old workhorse. And he directed The Guns of Navarone, Cape Fear, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. And he's a much more kind of efficient uh, journeyman kind of guy. 
Although I did hear, uh, I heard Tarantino talk about him once, and uh, Tarantino is a fan of Jay Lee Thompson, as you can imagine, and uh, and he he said that he that he loves these canon Jay Lee Thompson films because you get to see Thompson indulge his inner sadist. Uh, anyway, not to get off on too much of a tangent about old hack directors. <laughs> The movie begins, you know, we're several movies in at this point. Bronson has worked his way through several wives and girlfriends. Every movie. It, it, they, all, they always end up dead. Yeah, it's death wish tradition. And you might wonder, what's the common denominator here? <laughs> but he's in L.A. now. You remember in the first one, he was in New York. And it seems that he's reestablished his architecture career. He, the movie opens where he's running an architecture firm. He presumably designs buildings, I would imagine. And it's been a while since he's, he's killed anyone. He looks about... 70. It's like Death Wish 4, folks. Charles Bronson is back and he's older than ever. Yeah, he looks like the guy who's in front of you at the grocery store with a book full of expired coupons, but don't tell him that because he's going to cash them out. He looks like an old catcher's mitt that you'd pick up at a garage sale for 50 cents. But great hair. What is going on with how does he have such a good head of hair? He looks like Justin Bieber. But so, yeah, he's we're, we're to believe that he's an architect and uh, we're introduced to a young woman who's uh, working for him. Uh, we see him on the phone with a woman who's slightly older, who's the young woman's mother, who we learn uh, he's dating. Because Charles Bronson is a very sexual being, don't forget. He yeah. may be 70 years old. <laughs> he's but. a... Yeah, there's something of a kind of like Steven Seagalish quality to these movies where it's there's this willing suspension of disbelief that we're supposed to believe that Charles Bronson is, yeah, this just citadel of like masculinity, just a walking oasis of testosterone and sexual charisma. Well, it's much like late period Seagal in the sense that for it to work at all, you have to have seen his movies from 30 years ago and you have to kind of project your memory of yeah. that yeah, onto yeah, him. Yeah. But so, you know, this kind of sets up the family unit, if you want, that Bronson is part of. We then cut to, you know, he's having dinner at their house and her boyfriend, who's a bit of a ruffian, shows up, drives up in his, you know, 80s convertible, listening to music that, like, I refuse to believe that's real music. It's this kind of wailing guitar metal. It's more like Muzak. And it's meant to signify, you know, that, folks, this guy's bad news, okay? He's got slick-backed hair, if not in uh, reality, uh, then in temperament. We see him share a joint with Bronson stepdaughter. That's right. Uh, so then they drive off and then Bronson says to his girlfriend, Hey, I don't trust this pally. Yeah, he's like, yeah, he's like, I don't trust him. And he says, you know, I, I look on her as my own daughter. And, and she says, well, you know, she feels exactly the same way. So this, in theory, sets up the stakes of the movie because you think, okay, well, something's going to happen to her and, you know, then he's going to get revenge. And that is sort of what happens. But then basically, <laughs> both the daughter and the girlfriend disappear for most of the rest of the movie movie. Like, the movie's not about them. And by the way, the reason I'm referring to them that way, and the reason why we're just calling Charles Bronson Charles Bronson is because, like, none of these are, like, characters. They're cardboard cutout. Like, even if you're watching the movie really closely, are they even named on screen? Are these characters given any dimension? Like, even to the point of having a name? Well, Charles Bronson, he's kind of like a minimalist sculptor. Or he's like <laughs> he's like a Barnett Newman canvas, you know? It's the, it's the little gestures. It's the little applications of color. That's right. He's the movie star who barely speaks and he's the action star who doesn't run or climb or do anything. So yeah, the daughter and her, her boyfriend, her punk boyfriend ride to the local youth arcade, which this movie's, <laughs> this, is, this movie's vision of youth culture, this, is so funny. this movie's vision of youth culture is so good where they get to this arcade and it's got bumper cars, it's got video arcade games, yeah. there's kind of like poppy music. The, the vibe's totally off. It's like it's like weird. A, it's like a Chuck E. Cheese basically. Yeah, but it's like this pastiche of like what it imagines different youth cultures that it's kind of imagining as one thing that's kind of uh, depraved and you know infected with drugs and you know where the sexual revolution has gone too far and then you see it and it's like okay, we got like a bunch of surfer stuff. We've got punks, people like roller skating. Uh, like they're doing that like disco roller skating. People are doing cocaine, but then they're just like playing Mrs. Pac-Man. Like that's what that's what this movie thinks youth culture in the 80s was. At one point, Bronson is driving a car, presumably like hiding out. And the car has a bumper <laughs> sticker that says, I heart new wave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so New Wave, I guess, is the sort of contrived aegis that the film, like, collapses all of this under. It's You just have to laugh at it. So his stepdaughter gets some bad stuff from some bad hombres. Some bad dudes. And yeah. uh, she overdoses immediately. Bronson and his girlfriend, I guess, that's who she is, like, go to the... They go to the ICU. They go to the ICU. She's dead. She it's just, like, she just we're not even her. 10 minutes into this movie at <laughs> yeah, this point. Yeah, yeah. Daughter's dead. You know, he's very sad about it. So then he gets summoned to what basically appears to be the big Lebowski's house. Well, well, first of all, don't forget, he hunts down the boyfriend. Oh, that's right. He goes to the youth arcade. Because the, the, the boyfriend, who is the dumbest guy in a movie full of dumb guys, goes to the pusher and is like, hey, man, that was some bad stuff you gave my girl. And I'm going to tell the police. I'm going to tell them everything, which is, of course, what you say to a violent criminal. And then, yeah, the guy just, like, stabs him on the spot. Bronson chases him, shoots him, and then he falls on top of the bumper <laughs> yeah. car thing and gets electrocuted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bronson just, like, kills him in front of everyone. And he just gets electrocuted, yeah, on top of, like, on this sort of cage where the bumper cars are connected to. It, we're four movies in. The idea that Bronson is the vigilante at this point is an open secret. <laughs> he just goes and kills this guy in front of everyone. But in, in his day-to-day life, you know, before the sun goes down, he's just a mild humble man, architect. Mild-mannered. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he gets summoned to, you know, this rich uh, media mogul's <laughs> mansion. And he says, well, uh, why, do you, why do you want me? Of course I know who you are. You're a very wealthy newspaper mogul. And the guy says, I want you for your professional expertise. <laughs> wink, wink. this... <laughs> Something else I got to get in here is all the dialogue. This is kind of almost a hyper real. Like, the, I mean, this is where the camp quality of the movie comes in. Is that all the dialogue is like the most generic '80s movie dialogue you can possibly imagine? It's like scene: a cop has to get up early to go to a crime scene, and the first thing he says is, "Ah, why you wake me up, Sarge? I, you're, you're cutting into my beauty sleep." All the dialogue is just shit like that. This media mogul or whatever who summons Charles Bronson, and for some reason is in this old money house where he's got like pictures of the Duke of. Wellington on the wall for some reason. Again, like every setting this movie tries to imagine is slightly off. There's something similar going on in its depiction of this house as there is in its depiction of like what it imagines to be depraved youth culture. But so yeah, his dialogue with this guy is, you know, the guy just being like, yeah, I need your professional skills. Like it could almost be AI generated. And so we learn from this guy that he's been buying up, you know, information on this local criminal gang or something. And yeah, he basically wants Bronson to go out and just kill these guys. And then what most of the movie is, is a series of sketches where Bronson just goes and hunts down each guy individually and just kills them in some gruesome way. And I love it because each one of them, (laughs) like he's basically, you know, like Kill Bill style. He's got a list of people to go out and kill. And in every single case, he does it in the least clever way possible he's the, he's the worst there's no scheming <laughs> yeah, yeah there's no like it's trickery. not it's not it's not like liam neeson in taken or something where his special set of skills are like he's extremely good at hand-to-hand combat or he's like or he's not like james bond yeah, inf- infiltrating like, a yeah. place <laughs> yeah, yeah you know he's not an ethan hunt yeah his his strategy is to clumsily wander into places bull on a china shop yeah just looking more suspicious than anyone could possibly look <laughs> Encountering the first person he sees, delivering a pithy one-liner, and then just killing them, okay, whoever so they are. Perfect example. He goes to this drug baron's, like, big drug estate. You know, there's a huge pool party with, you know, a million bikini women at the pool and, you know, tons of unsavory-looking gentlemen named Rico. And uh, they're all having their big drug meeting. And he's a bartender. And he's got his little bartender's uniform on. Anytime he's got a little outfit on... <laughs> You know, Charles Bronson, 70 years old with his mustache and his face and his hair, everything about him. He's ser- serving drinks. How did he get the job? Like, it's never explained. But anyway, his big scheme is he sees he sees all the big bad drug guys going into the big drug guy's office. So his scheme is he goes to the office and peeks through the door. Yeah, he go, well, and not just any door. Initially, it seems like he's found some like back hallway or something where he can peek in and then make his escape. But it turns out his strategy is even dumber than that. He's gone in. It's a bathroom where there's no exit. And then after he's finished watching them, he just kind of like loudly closes the door. And of course, they see him. One of them is like, huh, you better be quiet if you know what's good for you. Here, help, uh, help Rico take the body out. Yeah, and, sure. I and, don't know nothing. And, and him and the guy, they're taking the body out. And it's clear the henchman is going to kill Bronson. So what does Bronson do? Kills the henchman, and then he 
runs away. Yeah, runs, he runs, it away. runs in, in right. quotation marks. He gets away. Some kind of gate is assumed. Too generous you know, to call it a run. No security. <laughs> Nobody follows him out or anything. And the whole movie is things like that. Like there's a scene. There's a scene where there's some other drug drug lord where he goes into the the drug the drug lord and his the gangsters mole are going off to the opera and he goes to the guy's oh, yeah, apartment yeah, yeah, yeah. apartment on the 25th floor and i i see this and i'm like oh this is great somebody's falling out that window well and the setup for the scene's hilarious because this gangster is about to go out we learn that he's like this awkwardly mobile gangster that's how he's referred to he's about to go out to the opera with his girlfriend and there's about like five straight minutes of him and the girlfriend having this kind of like cutting banter back and forth where you know they're sort of doing digs at each other and he's like you know why are you wearing this hideous dress I told you to get the purple one but then the implication is kind of like I don't know we're, we're all just having fun here but then yeah he has to go back up for some reason and then Bronson again is like Bronson has the jump on this guy could literally just wait for him to open the door and cap him but instead he has to wait for him in the kitchen where he's totally visible the guy just has him in the crosshairs could shoot him at any time why is he in the kitchen it's so that he can deliver the line when the guy says, what are you doing? I'm making a sandwich. And then he just like flings the fridge door open and like beats the guy up. So stupid. What the fuck are you doing here? I was making a sandwich. And then of course, yeah, the guy falls out the window I'm sitting there thinking, okay, he's going to fall out the window. He's going to land right next to the car where his girlfriend's waiting, being like, why is he taking so long? Well, you were wrong. He landed on the car. <laughs> That's right. He landed on the car. But as he's falling, she says something like, oh, what's taking him so long? Usually he'll drop dead before being late to the opera. And then he drops dead. Yeah, and there's another scene where, you know, Bronson goes to, like, the drug factory, and he just <laughs> mows a bunch of people down, and then he very oldly runs away. Or there's, you know, so one, one of the things that he's allegedly doing, which I'm not really sure he's actually doing, is starting a gang war. He sort of does it so that he can get all the gangs to meet up, you know, in the old oil fields, and then he's just there, like, on the grassy knoll, and he's gonna, like, shoot them all. This is where the film tries to introduce some interest and it doesn't really work because one of the two cops who's following Bronson it turns out is a little crooked and he's he's the one who warns gang number one that you know gang number two is planning you know a setup or something he lures Bronson at one point to some kind of a trap where you know his car blows up but of course you know he gets away but yeah there's this uh, shootout on the on the oil fields as they're called shootout next to some oil derricks which I think I recognized from playing Grand Theft Auto 5 you know, I've had a shootout on those same oil derricks. But anyway, it's a really boring shootout. You know, the action in this movie is not good at all. Well, it's not action. It's violence. <laughs> right, right. And you can imagine, like, when <laughs> Hong Kong action movies started getting imported over to the U.S., how that must have blown people's minds. <laughs> this is just like you're planting the camera down and watching a 70-year-old man fire a gun. Yeah, this is to John Woo what, like, Kenny G is to John Coltrane. <laughs> but, I mean, I do think that's, like, part of the appeal of it. It's a sadistic movie. It's a cliche thing to say, and I'm not even really saying it in a super judgmental way. I'm saying it in a descriptive way. The movie has the structure of pornography, right. where it's like there are five or six set pieces that end in there's a no, shootout no or suspense. an explosion. You know what's going to happen. Yeah, there's, yeah and, and that's what it's all can, about. Can we talk about the one, the one at the, the Italian restaurant? Another, oh, another, another... This is my actual favorite scene. It's another location where it's just, everything is just slightly off because it's not an Italian restaurant it's like like what the filmmakers imagine an italian restaurant to be an italian restaurant that's a front for the mob that's called like legitimate business establishment you know the the business hours are it's open from like two to four one day a week or something and and it makes millions of dollars a year yeah grosses 20 million dollars a year but (laughs) there's a scene in this where he plants a bomb under the table or something and there's there's about like three or four milliseconds that are some of the funniest in the history of cinema you see uh, a young Danny Trejo is at the table, by the way. Yeah, the, the edit is not quite precise enough because you see two dummies, the worst Danny Trejo-shaped dummy you've ever seen, just before it explodes. And everybody, folks, you've got to watch this movie just for that one moment. It's so funny. 
So uh, the movie goes on. The whole midsection is just this. It's one vignette after another. And and this is the majority of the movie. And the actual thing that instigated all of this is like not alluded to at all. As he's going on this killing spree, he doesn't seem to check in with his girlfriend at all, who's grieving because her daughter has just died. Never calls her. You'd think (laughs) they'd broken up. Yeah, yeah. But then... You forget that she's in the movie. She comes back finally as a third act complication because of course she gets kidnapped. You know, the stuff with the crooked cops comes back all the threads get tied together basically all you need to know is that the big bad kills bronson's girlfriend in well, front of well because the big bad was the guy who was living in the you know the guy with the portrait of the duke of wellington or who whatever was posing who it turns out does not actually live there which this is a funny twist because bronson goes there to kill him and it's just a guy who looks like Christopher Lee is Saruman living there and he's like, oh, I've been in, I've been summering in Europe for three months. You couldn't possibly have visited me here. And it's like, what, what is the movie telling us here? It's like the con was that this like local mob boss for some reason moved into like Wayne Manor for three months, like while the proprietor was away. Like it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. The proprietor Airbnb'd it. <laughs> so yeah. The ba- also, also sorry to be pedantic here, but like he's masquerading as a guy who the film tells us is like a well-known media mogul right this guy's face would be in the paper like it doesn't make any sense uh, bronson they didn't have a cell phone back then we're, we're for, we are forgetting about one b story that involves we his, are? his girlfriend well yeah because his girlfriend we, is a reporter the movie picks this oh, up right and it just doesn't really do anything with it so she goes to her editor at the la tribune and she's like we need to just do a story about drugs and the and the editors he's having none of it he's like ah you don't understand shelly everyone's doing drugs Drugs are not hot. Middle class people are doing drugs. The kids are doing drugs. Everyone's doing drugs, which it's like... That doesn't really make sense editorially. If everyone's doing drugs, is that a reason to do a story? Right, right. Then there's this weird thing where she's like, I know there's a conflict of interest because I'm so close to the story. Because my Cause, daughter cause died. Because her daughter just yeah. died. So so that sets up, you know, she's a very ethical journalist or, you know, she's concerned with ethics and the editor's like, well, okay, but, you know, you're going to keep me up to date every step of the way. And after this, she goes back to the arcade, you know, the den of depravity where people are playing Mrs. Pac-Man and listening to uh, new wave music. And she's quickly accosted by another pusher. Little Easter egg here for anyone who's seen Star Trek Voyager. The actor who plays this guy is Tim Russ, who starred on Voyager as Tuvok, the Vulcan character. But this interaction's hilarious because Tim Russ just comes up to her and is like, oh, how do you do? You seem like a fellow connoisseur of illicit substances. Very quickly, she's just like, yeah, I'm a reporter. Uh, can I pay you for information? So the film, having set up this conceit of her being concerned with journalistic ethics, then like two minutes later, she's just going to some random drug dealer and offering to bribe him for information. I have a feeling that her editor at the Tribune might not be so down for that. Anyway, this plot is never like did she did she file the story? This the the big scoop she's writing about drugs. <laughs> I think their their instincts were right to downplay this story. Anyway, it doesn't matter because at the end she gets she, mowed she, down. She just dies. Yeah. Just killed like a dog out behind the barn. Because this is one of the kind of death wish trademarks. It's like Bronson will triumph at the end, but only at great personal cost. This is the kind of moral weight. And it ends on a sort of melancholy note of, you know, the big bad's been vanquished all drugs are gone now presumably but the the good cop the non-crooked one whose partner is crooked is pointing the gun at him and he says freeze stop i'll I'll shoot you sir and bronson says do what you have to do and he just walks away you can't kill this man he's already dead (laughs) and this is the second of two notes of ambiguity that are raised. One at the beginning, <laughs> one at the end. It's not even a note of ambiguity because just setting up Death Wish 5 where, I don't know, he's going to go to Chicago or something. Just, like, figure out a way to have new women in his life who get killed. No, oh, you just sell drugs to children. Oh, come on, it's a business, man. I'm only a supplier, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I don't make the kids use drugs. It's their choice. You don't do it, someone else will? That's right. No, that's exactly right. Oh, man. I mean, what? How many children have you killed with this shit? I do think we should talk about the politics of these movies a little bit, and this one in particular, because I do think there is an important distinction to be drawn between a film like Death Wish 4, The Crackdown, and a movie like Dirty Harry. 
I think it's a little too easy to write off every sort of reactionary right-wing movie where it's like a guy with a gun sort of indiscriminately killing people as all belonging to the same monolithic or homogenous block. This movie is different from others in the genre, I think in some ways in being even more unhinged, because ultimately this movie presents the cops as, as kind of bad. Like, it's a fantasy of such bloodlust that it can't even at the end be like, okay, well, we need this thin blue line between, like, civilization and barbarism or whatever. Well, like, the Dirty Harry movies are about, oh, the cops are tethered, there's too much red tape, there are too many constraints on the cops, and if we just uh, get rid of all that red tape, the cops will be able to really do their jobs. Right. Um, but this movie is thinking systemically. It's, it's, it's saying the system itself is the problem, you know? <laughs> All cops are bastards, says Charles Bronson. <laughs> but it, the thing is, it's not even like, I know what you mean, but ultimately it's not even thinking systemically because it betrays its own setup. Like what it appears to be doing is setting the film up at the beginning as like Charles Bronson is a grieving father or, you know, a grieving surrogate father who's going to go out and, and achieve justice after, you know, this wrong is done to his family. Normally with that type of plot, maybe the cops are an obstacle, but the movie isn't sort of anti-cop in the same way. Or at any rate, this plot is undergirded by some like broader notion of, you know, justice that needs to be done. But this movie is not about like justice at all. There's no justice in the moral universe of these movies. They are just violent fantasies of revenge. The politics of something like this is closer to the politics that animates kind of right-wing militia movements who basically think that the only way to live safely is to be sort of like culturally separatist and live in a giant compound with like 10 million rounds of ammunition because really intense policing isn't isn't enough. Policing means bureaucracy and centralization, which ultimately means the, you know, the, the crippling hand of the state. And the state may try to impose some idea of justice, which, which is bad. We need to go beyond that. There's only the state of nature. There's only the law of the jungle. Like, that's what the politics of Death Wish 4 are. You know, the first Death Wish, one of the kind of interesting artistic decisions that it made was the muggers that you see assault and kill Bronson's family in the first act, you never see again. And that's something that kind of echoes through the rest of the movie. Bronson goes out and he starts shooting like <laughs> random muggers, but there's an implication. And please, I don't want to give Death Wish too much credit. <laughs> but it is an interesting decision that you don't get the catharsis of seeing the original bads killed. Like Bronson will be forever shooting at muggers, but he'll never get the ones that got his family in the first one. In this one, he gets everyone who got his family. He gets everyone. He gets the whole L.A. drug trade. The movie also seems to be implying, I mean, the way that he so kind of ineptly goes about it, you know, the movie seems to be suggesting that this criminal infrastructure is built on sand. Like, the one thing they're not expecting is just an ordinary man to, like, come in like a bull in a china shop and just start shooting people. Maybe if we were all just a little courageous. If we all just got a gun and went in and started shooting people, like... Maybe that's the prescription. Yeah, that's the road not taken when it comes to America's crime problem. It's a 70-year-old man with a face like a catcher's mitt just going out with an Uzi and gunning random people down <laughs> for no reason. Yeah. 